Hi, welcome to the fifth episode. I'm your host Noel Woodward, and this is for the love of, for the love of urbanism, reading cities and their stories with Tarun Basin. This episode right here is a conversation with a friend of mine from architecture school. He joins us to discuss cities and the many narratives within. This is part two of the episode. In the previous part, we spoke about Tarun's journey from architecture school, his love for storytelling, and an overview of two cities, citing some of his work. As we move forward, we'll explore Tarun's passion for long-form writing and expressing his thoughts on cities by talking about films that are intrinsically linked to geographical spaces and locations, as well as the idea behind his dissertation. So here goes, for the love of urbanism, part two. We covered a whole lot of ground in part one, where we spoke about the narratives of Bhopal and Delhi, with regard to the urban sphere in which they exist, and the need for us as architects and designers to be advocates of systems rather than just spaces. So we move away from cities for a bit, and we'll soon come back to it through your articles. Um, so let's just talk about the medium of long-form writing that you've taken up, as well as your brush with a couple of online platforms. For people like you and me, it feels like a breath of fresh air, since there's very little content out there that needs more than a couple of seconds of attention. So this is going to sound like a rant, but um, apps like InShorts, I feel, while helpful to disseminate information, have seriously done more harm than good. Our attention spans have taken a huge beating, and ultimately, knowledge and nuance take a backseat. So coming to the question, do you feel we are hopefully entering an age where people are making an effort? to try and look for meaningful content hmm that's i think i would a lot of people would disagree with me on this but i think we've entered an age where most of the people are searching for quick answers in the content yeah. that they are looking at and i'll give you the example of medium.com so i've been a reader on medium.com for a very long time hmm i think when it was in its testing phase that's when i came across the website and i've been a reader there so in the beginning because it was primarily a platform for hobbyists who who were bloggers who were writing on their own blogs on wordpress primarily and they weren't getting any traction and at the same time they weren't getting any critique in that sense because if you're a writer naturally you want to uh, improve and you want mm. someone's opinion that uh, on how to improve as a writer or how to curate stories so in the beginning i see so many different writers picking anything right and writing about it so going to medium.com was like a breath of fresh air because now you are looking at short texts or very long essays but at the same time they're talking 
about things that the writer wants to talk about and wants to bring to notice so your observations are original in that sense mm-hmm. cut short to today medium.com is and a compilation of all the self help books that you find in a bookstore <laughs> pick one book condense all the chapters into 500 words put it out there you'll get a you'll get 5000 claps that's what it's come down to and what i'm actually looking at is because it's now an seo driven platform so it anything that is talking about such stuff in a quick manner that gives the reader instant gratification gets more views gets more claps in that sense so naturally it is bringing a lot of writers down to this track where to sustain as writers to get gratification as writers they they've decided to change how they write i do not want it to sound like an attack on someone's writing style or the decisions they take as a writer rather i would say that i feel sorry for the profession of hobby writers let's say i i feel myself i call myself as a hobbyist as a writer because i am not taking writing as a job yeah i take writing as a form of expression where i want to explore what i'm observing how i wanted want to put it down on paper and how i wanted to connect with people so basically if the current systems of internet are restricting my outreach regarding the observations I, that i want to talk about then ultimately it's going to reduce the knowledge of the things we are producing as a society and i think internet more than writers or audiences needs to address that we we are looking at metrics where platforms like linkedin or platforms like facebook constantly push things that are visual i agree that you need to make things powerful but at the same time they're constantly pushing things that are that reduce the size of the text if you actually look at serious writers authors of new york times they write probably one essay in the entire month it is 6000 words long there's a reason why new york times has credibility because their writers put a lot of time into research and one thing that you realize after researching a lot on any topic is like we've talked about delhi and bhopal there are so many aspects to cover so if you are talking about truth of a particular situation and now i'm not coming to topics that are personal in nature that are public in nature let's say and where there are so many stories that we need to talk about then ultimately you need you end up increasing the word count go back to writers that we love go back to charles dickens or ernest hemingway or any good writer leo tolstoy fyodor dostoevsky we are looking at writers who can go and entire who can condense an entire paragraph in a sentence and that sentence is like a roller coaster ride so i think in this particular age i think it is because platforms have become all powerful now i think we need to address this issue but i think platforms for the freedom of expression as we call it it's not just about putting your opinion it's also about how you put your opinion how you are able to structure it and i think the platforms today that are online need to address that massively urgent yeah when it comes to long form writing uh, what's fascinated me and will continue to do so is the very 
interconnectedness of everything. I mean, authors are able to pull in thoughts, ideas, expressions from all over the place. And as you said, a huge amount of research goes into it, right? So you're effectively tapping into different stories to put forth your own. So it has this ability to completely draw you in and automatically makes the entire experience a whole lot richer, much more nuanced. And when you have these numerous layers which um, have been pulled from different people, it kind of forms an intersection and feels like an overlap of different genres and fields. A melting pot of ideas, so to speak. Yeah. So I'm just going to point out a couple of long-form writings that I've found fascinating, and you can do the same. So Brain Pickings is one of them, which I mentioned as part of the very first episode of the podcast. Second is a website that talks a lot about tech and culture, which is Wired. Oh, I love I love their articles. I love their essays and their documentaries. I feel at this rate, this will also become a long-form podcast if it hasn't already. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was a nice little detour from the structure of stories and coming... And coming back to writing, since that's how you're expressing yourself these days, would you like to recommend any long-form blogs, articles, or authors before we move forward? I would mention writers rather than platforms. Uh, I connect with writing style of certain essays hmm. of certain columnists. Yeah. Uh, so one such writer is Charles Siebert. Charles Siebert writes for the New York Times, and he talks about interspecies empathy. Hmm. Now, he's covered very peculiar cases. He's Hmm. covered the case of human-elephant conflict. He's covered the case of someone on behalf of a parrot filing a case (laughs) against that parrot's owners for mental harassment. (laughs) So that's a very peculiar case. In in the eyes of law, a parrot filing a case on its owners for mental harassment. So you want to read about that, really? Like it, it will blow your mind how <laughs> how mm. things happen in court. That's one. But at the second time, what are the aspects of legality for a parrot to file a case against its owners? And at the same time, the mental state of a parrot. How actually humans can inflict certain damage on different species. And human elephant conflict is about that. How it came about. I, I came to know about that was through Rahul Mehrutra's famous project, Hathi Gaon. Yeah, so I was yeah. reading about Hathi Gaon. I ended up reading about human-elephant conflict and I ended up reading about Charles Siebert. So, and the essay is like a mini story. It's around 10,000 words. So Charles Siebert is definitely a person who takes you through his journey in Kenya. Uh, him meeting different villagers who've been involved in battles with herds of elephants for generations now and you are looking at intergenerational stories of fights with elephants how do you cover that you cannot cover that in 500 words so i would definitely recommend people reading charles seabood apart from that i would say george orwell george orwell many people have read animal farm in 1984 but no one really knows that george orwell was famous as a journalist as a columnist he wrote essays and columns for newspapers frequently and if you go through his essays they're just brilliant i resonate a lot with that for example george orwell's essays 
on books versus cigarettes or his essays on coal miners or his famous essay shooting an elephant i think that really really powerful um and that sort of drives my passion for long form essays particularly i think uh, you'll have to send me the links to all of those <laughs> it'll make my life a lot easier <laughs> So yeah that's that's exactly what long form does right you spoke about how hathi gaon led you to seabert that's what i meant by the yes. interconnectedness of long form and how it tends to lead you to different ideas different thoughts different expressions and i feel somewhere maybe it's just the optimist in me but i really feel that people are starting to make an effort to search for content that gives them a well rounded experience and uh, yeah. explanation on certain subjects the very idea the very notion of long form in that sense has been extremely alluring to me the whole experience of living through it yes rather than just looking at it whoever is listening to this i want to i want them to read jumpa lehri's lowlands at least the first 10 pages the brilliant thing about that book is and things that make me want to remain keep writing as my primary expression yeah So Jumpa Lehri starts with a walk through, a walk through into the environment where the protagonists are based. Hmm. Now there are two aspects to it. One is the entire expression, the imagery, how she's written this. There's a long sentence, then there's a short sentence. The long sentence goes through sweeping details of the environment. The short sentence comes down. and centers itself on the protagonist so there's an there's an entire context yeah coming down to the person context coming down to the person and this is how narratives are like there's a context to any story how it's formed and even if it, like we're talking about right now how i yeah. came to know about charles siebert there's a context to it right and then there's charles siebert i can end with charles siebert in a line but i have to explain the context that's that's the first part of it and the second part of it is this is where the beauty is this is where the experience is because every person who reads that the first 10 pages is going to visualize the environment in a completely different way in their mind and this is where the magic happens the voice in your head is different and it constructs meaning out of the same words differently and this is why you as a reader need to stop looking at writing as an affirmative answer and start looking at writing as an experience yeah so that's a good point to end on and kind of segue into the next segment which is the idea of stories linked with cities so what i want to touch upon is the way we talk about cities today the way we think about them and most importantly the way we experience them In one of your articles it's interesting how you describe the city of Manhattan through the film with the same name and it's certainly a surprising coincidence yeah. that I I'd, I'd spoken about the same thought in the episode prior to this where I talk about cinema as a strong driving force behind an individual's perception of cities today by invoking strong imagery for example if i say new york that word will instantly trigger memories instances images films and the numerous others by way of different mediums you may have explored in the past i know i am digressing a bit but uh, coming back to the article which is titled lessons from a pritzker laureate i'm just going to read an excerpt for context yeah 
The shots following the opening reveal more images of the Manhattan skyline, its waterways, street life, and works. Buildings clad either in stone or black glass, the famous Broadway and Central Park. These are certain images that can evoke the spirit of Manhattan in anyone's mind. More than the events, these tangible representations form strong memories and opinions about the city that are singular in nature, timeless and definitive of establishing context. If you have any comments here, you should go for it, and um, then I can come back to the next point. Again, I'm deeply influenced by how Woody Allen constructs an entire scene, and a lot of his scenes are in in his better movies are in the open. Uh, they are revealing the city. So, and the ones I've I've mentioned a few in the article itself. So the thing is, Woody Allen constructs an entire frame for the city, and he wants most of his good movies start with shots of the city, to Rome with Love, Manhattan, Annie Hall, all start with the cities. So this is where the writer is trying to establish a context. The director of the movie is trying to base the thinking. of the viewer in the city in the very beginning and it's it's a, a medium or this way of thinking or projecting thing is deeply influenced by writing because when you're writing screenplay this is where you are thinking about these things about the viewer or the reader how they are going to perceive things or how you can base an image in their head how how you can manipulate their thinking so that they are able to understand the characters better and i think when we are talking about cities we need to understand this positionality so positionality is a very heavy technical word but this it's the word like the position of a person of a character within the larger context of the city and the similarities and the differences of that character with the city so i think we need to establish that while we are talking about our cities and woody allen for for that matter does it beautifully another city that another movie rather that does it beautifully is in bruge we'll I've, come to that we'll come to that yes what's interesting about this is that um, and you've mentioned this in the following para it becomes evident uh, that architects have the responsibility of defining public memories of leveraging human expression and of influencing individual perception which kind of comes full circle when the filmmaker is influenced by the city which has been designed by a brilliant surveyor who would would have easily been called an urban designer these days and then goes on to make a film on it and then an yeah. urban designer writes about it <laughs> so i mean you don't have to dwell on this thought it was just an observation and something i found interesting you could touch upon it if you like or you could continue talking about the image of the city which you have started to explain by writing about films that are intrinsically linked to specific cities i think so manhattan and annie hall uh, are very romantic movies they are very enjoyable so that's one aspect the other aspect is that i enjoy jazz a lot and i'm influenced rather i'm i'm a fan of the music that originated from new york or the jazz originated somewhere else but new york is a city that exemplifies jazz it imbibes jazz into its culture hmm. so 
when you are looking at new york in the 20th century how uh, its music is defined by jazz it it accepted it to that degree yeah and so because i like jazz i like new york i like the idea of new york i i've never been to new york so i don't know if i like it or not and we'll come back to it later through in bruge but there are certain things that connect you to the idea of a city yeah and i think woody allen's movies try to reveal that in the beginning because now it's showing three different things first is it is showing all the images all the public memories of new york broadway everyone knows uh empire state building everyone knows so he's trying to base these images and trying to influence the viewer that hey listen these are 10 images you must be liking one so therefore you like the city now that you like the city you're probably more uh you can say perceptible to the story that's going to unfold in this movie so he starts with images he moves on to cultural connotations of jazz uh then he moves to the person in the end right in the end when he says he loved the new york city right so he's already establishing a very positive connotation related to the city uh in comparison to let's say other movies like taxi driver or or take the godfather right the opening scenes the music that is playing in the background the shots that are revealed in the very beginning give a very different image be it the inside spaces or the outside spaces but they set a whole theme a whole emotion for the movie through which the person perceives the movie and this is why we call the camera a lens right a, ca- a camera is a physical entity a lens is more about perspective movies are basically a lens into our urban fabric and the stories that they have and a better movie definitely establishes the context between the characters and the place that they are inhabiting it tries to connect uh, them and create sort of uses the elements of the city to reveal details about the character whether they like or they dislike certain things whether they in which situations they feel comfortable or or they feel the absurdity in a particular moment and the physical spaces are right there in that moment trying to influence their behavior and i think every good movie does that uses this as a very important tool in constructing its screenplay and that's the part i love the most about movies so in your next article remembering in bruges you again analyze the image and the very idea of the city and touch upon a rather intriguing topic of intertextuality we won't really go into the depths of what you've written which are in fact extremely insightful reads um intertextual to be precise <laughs> but um, i will share all these in the show notes and i urge my listeners to head on to the links and read them all but coming back to the point at hand uh, what do you think of intertextuality in a larger sense not necessarily when it comes to films but uh, when it comes to the narratives of cities so i'll try to explain that from the story of 
writing this article remembering in grooge itself sure so it was um, an assignment for one of the modules in term one of my masters program and the topic of the essay was a good city so we had to talk about a good city hmm. and i guess it's a fairly broad topic it's it's a very vague yeah. topic to write about <laughs> yeah. and we are talking about masters we are talking about very heavy stuff like lefebvre <laughs> foucault <laughs> we are talking about other writers agamben like political thinking social thinking so we are looking at very specific topics right to the city citizenship issues very heavy stuff and now we are coming back to a very broad topic a very open ended topic to write about then i was thinking what should i write about i can write about physical elements i can write about social elements i can take up a, a particular issue and i just realized that mm, it will still remain open open ended right even if i reveal my opinion it's still going to remain open to debate because most of the people i'll ever meet in my life will disagree with it or will have something to add on to it and i just wanted to focus on this notion of it remaining open and what are the things that construct different perspectives around a city and i remembered my own visit to amsterdam so i mean before visiting amsterdam i had been dreaming about it i i i created a whole itinerary about the places i wanted to visit the things that i wanted to do i landed in amsterdam it's november it's really cold i forgotten to pack my warmers because i wasn't expecting it to be this cold before that i was in paris where i got drenched in rain and thus got cold so i enter amsterdam i'm ill it's terribly cold and to add to the coldness of the environment there are canals so you're walking alongside canals and i'm a skinny guy so there's wind sweeping in on the canal the water is cold so the wind is colder it picks up the cold water and hits me and shakes me up and i start to hate amsterdam i am not enjoying amsterdam i've dreamt about i've planned about this place for the last two months and i just do not like it and everything that looked beautiful in the images suddenly looks irritating to me and i caught on this aspect as like this is a beautiful city it has so much to talk about amazing urban planning but me as a person in amsterdam was completely disliking the place because of my own reasons and i went back to the movie colin farrell in bruge his entire persona if if you see him in the movie his shoulders are shrugged he's feeling cold and thus he's irritated always and i just picked up on that and that was the first link to the article i was like this is the movie i want to talk about because there's something deeply revealing about the character in this movie that is related to the temperature of the place he is in and i started from there and then the movie exploded the way spaces are constructed how different built spaces interact with each other end up creating that intertextuality and this is intertextuality how seemingly very different unaligned elements 
conjoin to form a very absurd situation or to form a similarity or a linkage that you otherwise wouldn't expect to be there and this is why cities are amazing because they've allowed completely different components of our society of our culture to interact with each other and form new meanings and this is where you can explore new meanings regarding a city which haven't been covered before thus the entire essay talked about this thing and it came to the conclusion that listen let's not decide what a good city is let's just start looking at things that f- help people form opinion about cities and come to a conclusion whether they like a city and they find it good or not yes i read the one you're talking about and i request everyone listening to head on over to the show notes to check these articles out so taking that thought forward when you talk about cities and when you write about them what according to you would be the most effective way of explaining the image of the city that's an interesting question it's also very tough to answer i don't know if there's one true answer to for, for that question no so you so you don't have to respond with a single answer basically you since you've been writing about it and talking about them for some time now uh, what do you feel is that core thought idea or concept that you know kind of helps you explain the image of the city i think given we we've established that when we are talking about cities and when we are trying to project an image yeah. we are going to cover multiple topics and we are going to cover multiple ways of doing that hmm. then primarily i think the more important thing in constructing that narrative or that image is about the entry point hmm the first thing that you pick to start building that image so let's say the foundational element of that image uh, much like the elemental components that mark a painter's style in painting right so they become the much like that there are certain components of how you put through which you perceive cities that you include in your writing and you begin to construct the image with that that condenses your narrative to that singular point i would go back to my reading readings from berkeley prize the essay i created i started with a walk through not really i actually started from a memory from a note in the diary so basically i started with 30 40 years back in time a person explaining a situation and at the same time the image within their house in the city and then i go back ahead in time and i show how that image has changed so i'm starting with a contrast in image i've seen a lot of essays on berkeley again for a reference when i was researching where people start with emotions certain times there's one beautiful essay that started with time then it started with the notion of time it started with it is morning 7 am so that i think i think that was the first essay i found and probably the only essay that started with one particular time and that marked the entry point that in itself created an entire image 7 am what's in your head when you start thinking about 7 am 
and now you're thinking about your city or your experience of 7 am and it 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 triggers your mind to go in a particular direction so it's like a slingshot and then the writer goes takes that slingshot wraps it back and brings the reader back to the story so 7 am now you're thinking of completely something completely else then the protagonist of the story comes in brings the 7 am round again back to the story back to the place it's 7 am near a chalk in mumbai right and so that shifts it entirely exactly <laughs> it's a 7 am in a chalk in mumbai for a rag picker now you're coming full circle again so i found that essay really beautiful it won the first prize for the year 2016 i guess and i found it really beautiful because in the first paragraph itself in the opening paragraph it took me in circles four or five times and i think that's that's what good writing does it it takes those elements builds them block by block and takes you full circle again and again and again it adds that layer right and it lets your imagination go haywire it lets you construct an image based on your own experiences but brings you back to those elements about time about the place that we are talking about so place can be its imagery how people are moving through the space how you would move through that space how people are resting in that space what people are doing in that space how people are feeling so protagonist feeling because of that space or beyond the space because of things going on in their own lives and then the larger narratives of the city so when we are talking about economy or society or culture right so what people are talking about that space so that's something i brought in my essay for berkeley prize where i'm talk giving the viewpoint of a real estate agent when we are talking about urban design and i bring the viewpoint of a real estate agent how the market value of the city was crumbling during the time of crisis to explain how the city is being perceived from the outside so it's not creating the image of the city but rather the perception of that image of the city so that's another layer that to the mental image and so again rudimentary elements like time like the physical fabric like the people their motion in space their activities in space to the larger mental notions related to positionality of people how they perceive society culture how they perceive their life what is going on in their life to even one degree higher of what people are talking about other things the intertextuality how people are talking about each other that's what i have explored understood till now there must be more layers and better writers are able to you know understand the depths of those layers and use them efficiently yes yeah, circling back to an article that you had written um, in that you spoke about globalization and the effect it has on cities today i think this is the one with rafael moneo if i remember correctly yeah so he mentions globalization and the generic city so kind of going forward uh, what would your views be on globalization and the idea of the resilient city in the future hmm. uh, i would say that globalization you look at traditional images of cities 
when we are talking about delhi or bhopal and the places that we talked about they were governed by certain people who constructed the city through the images that were suitable to their interests a globalized city takes away the idea of image or power of that image from the city and creates a flat city that does not expresses one individual or one community or one form of thinking or ideology there's an italian critic who wrote about modernism primarily manfredo tafuri i i hope i'm pronouncing his name right so manfredo tafuri writes about manhattan and there's a beautiful piece is written a very short excerpt where he says that what he loves about manhattan is its black glass because its black glass doesn't reflect anything it's black it's opaque so it doesn't reveal anything about the city so it completely detaches what goes on inside the buildings from the city itself and creates a an absolute exclusion an absolute division with how per- people perceive their internal lives or internal spaces let's say private spaces and how they perceive public spaces and because private spaces completely exclude the public environment it has no connection or no power to exert over the public space and hence public space becomes absolutely free and i think globalization has created generic cities in that sense create a greenness that is able to accommodate people because it has taken the power away from the private domain to exert influence over public domain of course there are certain consequences but they are more nuanced they are not apparent they are not forceful in nature so public has domain has been set free from political or hegemonic forms of influence i would say and thus globalization is amazing in that sense but it has created a problem for architects and urban planners because now we don't know how to construct identity of a city i, I don't know if what how to construct because we deal with we are the visual domain right and we our decisions are again deeply influenced in trying to create forms and we've come to a point where forms have become independent of identity and because they've become independent of identity and we are enforced with this task of giving identity to cities we don't know how to give identity to cities anymore so and we are failing at that and we don't like that and because we don't like that we don't like globalization as such but we love globalization because it allows us to practice in multiple cities at a time so this dichotomy is really funny and absurd and uh, i think i would like to remain keep it my answer at that dichotomy when it comes to globalization that it has set people free it has set public spaces free in that regard it has allowed participation to happen 
and that's what i like about it again what as an architect since we haven't been able to figure out how to give identity to new cities in in this form in this arena uh, i think it's it's an existential crisis for our profession and we need to solve that but for the larger public it's good so just picking up on that point that deals with participatory design and participation in general in global cities uh, we continuously speak of resilient cities and it has become one of those it's it's become one of those buzzwords right uh, so what in your opinion is a resilient city today and also what do you see it becoming in a post covid world hmm. uh, so i would say a resilient city is the one that is functioning well on all indicators and and now it's it's a good thing so from a competitive point of view uh, uh as simon sinek talks about finite games and finite games when he talks about game theory that the game of basketball works because there's a level playing field where there are rules set and to a great degree uh urban planning in that regard has helped us identify certain indicators indices of level playing fields so the un coming with sustainable development goals is let's say a very good start into understanding how resilient cities should work if we have them right now or not is another issue but at least we are coming on to the definition of resilient cities on terms of sustainable consumption production mechanisms in terms of how we are able to provide livelihood to our people how we are how people move in the city how efficiently they move in the city and how less power they consume while moving in the city how healthy people are when they are living in a city uh, in terms of the health of its environment in terms of the health of its systems of water air landscape uh, how healthy the food is or food production systems are uh, what are the metrics of education and healthcare and how urban infrastructure how inclusive it is in terms of education and healthcare so when we are talking about resilient cities at least we have if not a core definition we have a lot of metrics through which we can gauge the resilience of our cities in in response to certain forms of crisis and as again it brings us back to covid crisis because most of the cities failed uh and so we are and that reveals the the perception in planning mostly so why cities right now in covid have failed is because our systems of governance focus on high probability low risk problems high probability low risk is probably an epidemic that occurs every year like cholera which is endemic malaria which is endemic dengue which is endemic so you know that there is going to be a rainy season and you you are going to have outbreak of these situations but a low probability high risk scenario is a pandemic like covid which completely destabilize destabilizes your entire production consumption mechanisms it destabilizes your economy it puts all of your people in a house arrest things like these occur once in 100 years and so our methods of governmentality say ah it's not going to occur in my lifetime 
and every generation keeps postponing innovations or upgrading resilience mechanisms to meet the requirements when such a situation presents itself uh there have been numerous reports stating two decades back that say that we are bill gates has talked about it in ted talks we we've, we've been talking about this for a decade now in public domain that there could be a crisis in the next decade where that might force our people to stay inside might cripple our economy and we do not have any governance system that can address that so i don't put a blame on a particular government to for the crisis because we've been talking about it and saying that we don't have any governance mechanism to make our cities resilient to such a calamity uh so i think it should force us to think from the perspective of time from the perspective of probability of crisis uh and create mechanisms that help people function because people comprise the mechanisms of a city and as long as people are functioning in cities properly our cities are functioning so if i have to condense the idea of a resilient city taking lessons from covid i would say a city that helps any individual function properly in a city on those indicators that we are talking about in sustainable development goals is a resilient city and helps the person functions through all sorts of risks and scenarios high probability low risk scenario to low probability high risk scenario both the ends of that risk so for a post covid landscape coming to the second question i cannot say ah this is one particular way you can address the situation but let's talk about the issue of migrants in indian cities who had to go back your dissertation also talks about this right exactly yes so just expanding that thought because uh, when we talk about cities we hardly talk about migration i mean we talk about cities that serve a certain fixed populace uh, but the pandemic has thrown all that conventional thinking out the window i mean we are staring at a very different urban environment a different urban setup that um, going forward needs a really serious rethink of how our urban systems perform and respond to different extremities i feel so you could talk a bit about your dissertation and kind of club the second part of the question which talks about a post covid landscape my dissertation started with a small topic a uh, small aspect of the same problem it started with migrant construction workers so what i started with was story of franz kafka a small village uh the next village sorry so the next village has a very short short story it's just a one paragraph and a story condensed into that uh where he is talking about the vulnerability of a person in moving from one village to the other where he says that it's not just the idea of an accident happening with me in that motion it's the idea that my entire life might fall short to rebuild my life when i move to the next village and when we are talking about resilient cities we need to see how many people are in that migration pattern how many people migrate from rural areas to urban areas to find employment they are not trying to locate themselves or establish themselves in urban areas they are here to find a livelihood so 
the sense of ownership the sense of interaction with cities is different they don't identify with the history of the cities they don't identify with the public spaces the way we do and at the same time they don't try to access cities in the same way we do so what are the what are the notions of citizenship how do they relate to themselves as citizens while living in that city when they are not emotionally invested or financially invested in the city apart from their livelihood are the healthcare systems education systems accessible to them and the answer that we see in the post covid right now not the post covid landscape the current landscape is that they are not they are through there are systematic ways of excluding them from establishing themselves properly in a city the rents are high they are not given proper there are no land laws that can allow affordable rental housing to take place even if they are able to make a makeshift shelter they require the heavy hand of the govern government to access electricity to access water to access services like uh, sewerage uh, waste disposal slums are dirty because the government refuses to take waste out of slums slums are not dirty because people don't know how to segregate waste we have to identify that people don't want to defecate in the open they do not have toilets because they do not have sewerage lines in slums you can't build a toilet without having a sewerage connection as the rest of the city has so even if you are not providing them uh, housing even if you are not providing them affordable land we need to make sure that in the forms of shelter that they've created for themselves we are able to provide them the services and I, i think in answering the resilience of that post covid landscape i think we need to look at these issues and we need to accept coming back to the notion when we said that we are looking at we are trying not to look at the problem or we are shying away from the problem right it is this form of externalities that we've created it is this form of oppression that we've created in the city where we say that a person coming from the outside if they are not able to afford land they will not be given any electricity properly they will not be ge- given any water they will not be given any service that rest of the citizens enjoy why i don't want to own a house in the city if i move to mumbai right now for business or work i don't want to establish myself in mumbai i don't want to live in mumbai so why should i work my entire life to buy a house in mumbai so i can access water and electricity problem Properly. yeah it's it's absurd i mean electricity and water is scarce it needs to be utilized judicial judiciously especially given we are a developing country but at the same time people shouldn't be excluded systematically from accessing these resources and they shouldn't have to go through means that we've declared as illegal to access these resources and then they shouldn't further be discriminated when they are trying to access these resources because you can't live without water if we we allow these people to build our cities when we access their services for our cities to function we should at least provide them the dignity that they have a free hand at accessing these resources that's point 1 for resilient cities in a post covid landscape the second thing from a design point of view 
Till now, our cities were designed, right? Delhi is a designed city. Who designed it? The colonial powers designed it. So they said, the sewer is going to come here. It's going to collect waste from point A. It's going to throw the waste at point B. I don't care about point B. I only care about point A. Now, our city has grown so large that point A and point B are both point A and point B. The trash taken from the same place ends up in the same place, more or less, because that place has <laughs> engulfed yeah. point B. What happens here is that for the population that this municipal department or this design is serving, now this population density has gone beyond the capacity of that service system. So if you say that a few 10,000, 20,000 people of MCD can understand how to collect waste from each household, segregated themselves, recycle half, decide what to recycle, decide what to throw away, right? Decide what to incinerate. At the same time, locate the places where trash will be collected, at what time it will be collected, where it will be stored, how it will be moved. That's a hell of a task. And to say that this, as a designer, as an urban planner, I can sort out the spaces all by myself or even with a team of 100 people to locate these points, to locate the movements, to locate the timings as an urban planner is, I, I would say, egoistic way of looking at the issue where the planner or the designer is, is assuming it is in their capacity to do that efficiently in the first place. So in a post-COVID landscape, we have to decentralize these forms of governance and urban design in that sense. So urban design, when we are looking at it, we try to look at all the beautiful aspects of the city, uh, like spaces of culture, monuments, marketplaces, things that we enjoy. We tend to not look at, observe things that make our cities function, that are these provisioning services. Where our water is coming from? Just because there's a tap that gives you water all the time doesn't mean that water is infinite. That tap will run out of water someday if you don't address water scarcity right now. Similarly, just because our city is not, my house is not in front of the river, doesn't mean that the river is not being polluted by the waste that I'm generating in the city. Now, these systems cannot be, for a huge city like Delhi, they cannot be addressed by one municipal department of a few thousand people. They need to be decentralized. The good thing about Delhi, let's say, is, or any city for that matter, composed of many neighborhoods is, neighborhoods have a specific, in terms of our own language as architects and planners, have a specific identifiable character, spatially, right? Which, where architects can intervene, help people understand that character spatially, and create working committees amongst those people who decide how their electricity is sourced, how their water is sourced, can things be upgraded within the neighborhood, who people manage them, people help with their design. And European cities are doing that beautifully. You're looking at Finland, you're looking at Denmark, going towards public-private partnerships between their neighborhoods. 
where people are deciding where the windmills or the solar panels are going to be placed people are working on the management of their lakes people are deciding where the houses will be put so that it doesn't disrupt the environment there the ecosystems there so people are being brought into their decision making process and architects and designers are acting as intermediaries they are helping them understand their own neighborhoods and helping them decide what they want to do with their neighborhoods so i think we have to look at such forms of engagement in the post covid landscape again i am not saying post covid landscape looks like this but if you want to create a good image a good city in a post covid landscape this is the process you need to follow to be able to do that we've realized that the current processes we have aren't working so like the entries in future arc in waf in any other project again the idea of a post covid landscape is not a definite image that relates to a smart city or a cultural city or a green city it's not a definite image but it is about processes there are certain definite processes that can help you realize your own image of a good city of a resilient city in a post covid landscape and we need to focus on those processes wow that's some powerful stuff yes there isn't an answer to what the outcome may be i don't think anything is that simple but like you said we can and should rethink the way we do things going forward we have an amazing opportunity to look at this crisis and say hey we've been doing it all wrong and we should use this time to innovate and develop new systems that are both independent of as well as interconnected to each other basically self sustaining cycles that do not bring the whole system to a grinding halt if one of them stops working the time really is now to identify those problems and start making changes but do we have the will that's a very different question altogether and maybe should be covered as a separate episode and speaking of separate episodes we have reached the last part of this one and i'd like to pick your brain one last time even even though this is one controversial and broad area which again should be covered as a standalone episode but since i'm curious i'll ask you anyway <laughs> so what are your thoughts on the central vista project and how do you think it will affect the image of the city just very brief points that could possibly help me build the talking point for when we come back to talk about it all right uh three points i'll i'll do it very fast quickly first point uh the debate in our practice has been about how preference has been given to three particular firms uh that only three particular firms qualified to uh take part in the tender process the problem is not that the problem is not about preference when we are talking about our country that has a 2.5 trillion dollar economy when we are looking at practices like infosys that sprang up as startups in 80s and now make a profit of 6000 crores in a quarter and industries all other industries doing that only the architecture industry is the one left where we have in the entire country only three firms that are able to generate a revenue of only 50 crores that's the point we need to be looking at we need to question why are we not able to create big firms in our country so that's problem one second problem central vista buildings are old 
you cannot hang on to a building a building has a life cycle so to everyone who has a nostalgic reference to the central vista a it was created by colonial powers it has a very hegemonic structure its public spaces are exclusionary so as an urban designer i do not have any sentimental attachment to the central vista in its current form second please do not be traditionalists and try to hold on to buildings that have a particular life cycle all buildings are not monuments third buildings especially when it comes to govern governance structures or when it comes to bureaucracy must be efficient and buildings their efficiencies are dictated a lot by the mechan mechanical systems electric systems hvacs things like that they change they adapt they innovate we see innovations in these systems thus our buildings must change from time to time so i agree with the idea of central vista its current time is precarious we are already suffering as an economy the amount being given to the central vista again i am not qualified to comment on that so i i'll refrain from commenting on that but the idea of central vista i think it's high time we do that i have been in a few of those buildings uh cramped corridors bad lighting bad ventilation uh a lot of fire hazards because now that we are looking at technological systems lots of wiring lots of heavy equipment going in so we are looking at open wires wires that have been joined together so we are violating a lot of fire hazard laws so in case of a fire you do not want something that scars the city for life so it is high time we develop those buildings again we from a planning perspective you are looking at two departments that were different departments before but now are the same department but they are functioning as two different offices 1 kilometer apart so like we look at how our offices run can you expect two different departments in your office say hr and accounting departments to be in separate blocks in a city no you cannot right now your cities do not accommodate them coming into the same place so what you have to create a new building if we allow private companies to do that why can't we allow our government to do that government also needs new office spaces they also need co-working spaces when the entire world is talking about co-working spaces you are saying that government should hold on to 80 year old buildings with cramped office spaces and very very tiny nest nested spaces that's not logical so i disagree with you on almost everything you said <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we really need to do an episode now. So I've got a couple of counterpoints to what you've just said. I'll just go over them really quick. Uh first, we don't have big firms in the country. Uh we have a few, but largely we need larger firms to execute bigger projects. The reason is that this industry is so full of problems that very few people follow a certain set of rules and regulations. And if anyone wants to work with even an iota of honesty, it is looked down upon and they are told that you won't be able to function unless you go according to the status quo so what do you do you move forward and then become part of that system we've been talking a lot about systems and processes throughout this podcast but but i'm sorry to say a lot of people stay away from this field or find it difficult because of these very processes to begin with 
Second, buildings are old and have a particular life cycle. I mean, I don't have a problem with someone improving those buildings or even demolishing them. I mean, some of them. But again, I come back to the same thing. Process. There needs to be a process in place before we declare building unsafe or unfit to be used. When it comes to nostalgia, we've spoken about uh, participatory design. Where was the participation when this was announced? The image of the city has and always will have nostalgic elements. Why were the stakeholders, the people, not asked to weigh in? Third, why can't we allow our governments to do that? Yes, it all makes sense when you talk about everything in isolation, but when it comes to the larger socio-political spectrum, there are a lot of red flags. What I do have a problem with is, and I may, may seem like a broken record at this point, process. If we go purely by that, then we've got a problem. But in any case, that's a discussion for another day. Yes, I think a lot of narratives are uh, involved in this. And I think, yeah, it, it, it demands a long-form essay. On that note, thanks a lot, Tarun, for joining us and for an intriguing look into narration and storytelling when it comes to cities as well as the processes that make them tick. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here and thank you for allowing me to speak for so long. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope the people who are listening to this enjoyed the conversation and uh, I hope to come back here again and talk about Central Vista and a lot of other things. Yep, looking forward to the next one. So that was our fifth episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Tarun will be back for the Central Vista episode real soon. And trust me, I'm not going to hold back. (laughs) So here's a glimpse at what's in store for you next week. Our next episode brings aboard a self-taught designer, programmer and web developer who considers himself a maker at heart. We'll be exploring his journey and his passion for technology. Stay tuned for the preview this Wednesday. Keep up to date with whatever's going on by following us on Instagram at For the Love of Podcast. You could write to us with your thoughts, comments, and feedback to connect at for the love of podcast.in. Subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. This is For the Love of.